You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you can remain standing, uh, we have Redemption kids today, so kids ages 2 to 4 and 5 to 9. Our kids who are 5 to 9 will be learning this this morning. So we, go, we are a confessional church. We've been pulling from the New City's Catechism's question, but we're adding our confession of faith to the answer. And man, we're talking about divorce today. <laughs> like, I, I don't plan it like this, and our kids are learning about hell. So, welcome to Redemption Hill. <laughs> question. And then you can, um, with me, with the answer. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith, if you feel so inclined with me, the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his power. You may be seated. Kids, you may be dismissed. Redemption Hill teachers, you may be dismissed. Well, for kids who are staying in service, we do have totes in the hallway if that serves you. Also, we got sermon notes over there as well. Uh, as I say every Sunday, kids, you're never a burden. You are a blessing. So if you're in here, welcome. So after taking a week off from our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, because we had Baptism Sunday, last Sunday, uh, we are back into the thick of it. And man, we are in the thick of it. Uh, sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5. Uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're just making our way slowly. Maybe by the time we're done, we'll have about 40 sermons through these three chapters. And today's text is perhaps the most challenging to teach, especially to 21st century American listeners, (laughs) especially. Obviously, as you read, the teaching on divorce. Now, this does lead me to this statement. This is one of the reasons why at Redemption Hill we preach verse by verse through the Bible. You can't ignore the hard texts. You got to tackle it head on. Like we're doing today and what we did two weeks ago when we talked about adultery and lust. You got to deal with it. There's a lot of avoidance of the hard text within the American evangelical church. I got a lot I could say on that, but I'll put a pin in it for now. We don't do that here. The Lord spoke these words with purpose and for good reason. And it just happens to land this morning on us. I want you to hear from me that this has been one of the most difficult messages that I've ever written. And if you don't know, I write everything word for word. I write a manuscript. One of the most difficult messages I've ever had to write. It's difficult for several reasons. First, when Scripture is clear about a principle, I have no problem upholding that principle, right? Jesus said it. 
Go do it. I believe it, right? But Holy Scripture, as we know, is not exhaustive about everything. We know there are aspects of divorce that are not directly addressed. I'll spend most of my time telling you what is clear from Holy Scripture. But i got to admit, there's more I wish was explicitly stated about divorce. I really do. And I uphold the sufficiency of Scripture. I really... But it's like, I have, you're going you're gonna to experience this this morning, and I have experienced it all week. I have so many more questions when it comes to the topic of divorce. Questions I would like to ask Jesus if he were here in person or when he comes back. Another reason why this has been a challenging sermon to write is because of the impact divorce has had on some of you. I have a tremendous privilege uh, to know many of the stories in this room. And I know in those stories, there's, there's pain. There is suffering. And I'm sure some of you are going to hear me preach and a flood of memories is going to come into your mind because of the pain, because of the suffering, because of what you experienced. And I pray that God will meet you right where you are and minister to your heart this morning. Here's another reason why this has been a hard sermon to process and, and write. Divorce is a sensitive topic. Like it's not typically the conversation you have around the water cooler. <laughs> when preaching on a sensitive topic, the, the temptation is to offer like a thousand qualifications. Doing so, however, no longer makes this a sermon, but more like a college lecture. And I can't say everything in 40 minutes, and I will not offer endless qualifications. I can't. I have one final reason why this has been a doozy to write and preach. Even within our denomination, Trinity Fellowship Churches, there is a variety of opinions on divorce, divorce and remarriage for that matter. Men I love and respect will disagree with me on some of the stances that I take regarding marriage and divorce and then remarriage. But I do hope that disagreements, actually, inside the church here at Redemption Hill or even outside the church broadly in our denomination, actually make us stronger and, in the end, biblically faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So I hope all that makes sense. Um, I need God's help, so I'm going to briefly pray and then we'll get into today's text. Heavenly Father, first, I pray for our brothers and sisters who are traveling um, this weekend, Fourth of July weekend. May you be with them, Lord. May they uh, celebrate with joy, but I pray that their ultimate joy would be found in you. And Lord, as it pertains to today's message, my aim, my desire is just to be faithful to what you've already spoken. And I pray for the hearts and minds in this room that by the power of the Spirit that is indeed at work, you would meet my brothers and sisters. Help them to see the beauty of marriage as you have ordained and instituted. Be with us all. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm under no illusion that the preaching of this sermon is not the definitive statement on divorce. I'm not confused by that. It's not lost on me that I'm preaching to a a room full of people where divorce 
um, has impacted you directly or indirectly. Everyone knows somebody who's been divorced. If it wasn't you, you know somebody else. Divorce tears relationships apart. Divorce erodes trust. It can make people callous, right? Divorce divides families. Like the process of a divorce, just the process, is painful and it's ugly. But as you are listening to this sermon, instead of hearing a message on divorce, consider this to be a message on why Jesus is pro-marriage. Perhaps you can listen to our Lord and receive a growing desire to fight for your marriage so that the D word, divorce, never comes to your lips. Yes, we all need to contend with the teaching of Christ from Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32. But the undercurrent of this teaching from our Lord is radically pro-marriage. And we want to fight like crazy to be faithful to God and to our spouse. So two things are accurate at the same time. Number one, God wants a husband and wife to be faithful to one another, right? It's a true statement. While at the same time, because of sin, which can lead to unfaithfulness, there are times where we seem to see in today's text where divorce is permitted. So here's how I'm going to approach this sensitive topic. First, I want us to contend with the reality of marriage and divorce in our context, 21st century American context. There are biblical principles that transcend time and culture, but our culture is certainly different from the time of Christ. Before attempting to apply the teaching of Christ, I want us to get a grip of what we see going around us in the American ethos, 21st century. Second, after we kind of walk through that, I want us to look directly at the teaching of Christ from Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. We need to wrestle with the words of Christ. I think Jesus is saying something more profound than telling us when divorce is permitted. There's more going on than what we initially see. We need to get to the, to the root of this. We're going to grab the spade, we're going to grab the shovel, and we're going to start digging. Third, it is essential to show that God can shower and does, not can, but does shower his grace and mercy on someone who's gone through divorce. God restores those who are broken. God leads messy people down the path of redemption. Divorce does not need to be the end, but it can bring people into sweet dependence upon God. God hates divorce, but God is in the business of meeting his people when they are in the greatest need of help. So let's get to our first point. Let's get our collective minds around how marriage and divorce is perceived in our culture, right? Some of this is going to resonate with you because you're living in it. I'm a big believer that the breakdown of any society happens because of the breakdown of the natural family. Thank you. You Southerners need to help us Midwesterners 
bring that out. Amen. Amen. Listen to what I just said, though. I'm a big believer that the breakdown of any society happens because of the breakdown of the natural family. I'm using words very clearly and distinctly. Natural family. You might have heard nuclear family, but the meaning of the nuclear family has changed dramatically, at least since 2015, when the Supreme Court ruled on Obergefell and Hodges. It is the breakdown of the natural family that has caused such a dramatic shift in our society. What changes am I referring to? Well, there have been changes in the ethics of America. And when I say that, I'm not upholding the past as some beacon of light. I'm not going there. But there has been dramatic shifts in our culture. For example, the natural family has been devalued as marriage is viewed as a contract and not a covenant. Here's another shift due to the breakdown of the natural family. And this breakdown goes back at least 60 years, probably more. The number of single-parent homes in the United States has skyrocketed. I got this um, according to The Hill, and I pulled this statistic from them. In 2020, nearly 19 million children, 19 million, amounting to 20% of all children in the U.S. were living in single-parent families. That percentage is nearly three times the level of 1960, of 9%. Americans' proportion of children living with single parent is more than three times the worldwide level of 7%. Americans, it seems to me, have a lot to learn from our Ugandan friends or our Zambian friends, right? Of course, children are born out of wedlock primarily because men have become cowards and not caring for the mother and the child. And of course, divorce is now commonplace in American society, causing more broken and single-parent homes. In 1900, only 0.7 of marriages ended in divorce. Not even 1%. 0.7. In 1950, the rate rose to 26%. Then in two, and then in 2000, the rate rose to over 40%. 22 years later, it seems the divorce rate has dropped into the teens, but that is because fewer people are choosing to get married. So we might be like, hey, the divorce rate's in the, tweet, in, in the teens. Yeah, but no one's getting married. So we should not be celebrating that the divorce rate has dropped. We must realize that God's design for marriage and family has been completely upended. Listen, I'm not saying that Americans in the 1900s had it all figured out. It's not what I'm saying. There were dysfunctional families in 1900s, 1800s, 1700s. What I am saying is that we can't ignore the statistics and the reality. If anything, we have to ask, what is going on? What in the world is going on? How is it that something God created and ordained for our good has become so corrupted? How did that happen? How does the teachings of Christ inform us about what we see in culture? One more major point before we look at the teaching of Christ. One factor of many as to why marriages have disintegrated into a mere agreement is the introduction of no-fault divorce. I'm getting perhaps wildly controversial here. 
That's calling my calling card, so here we go. No-fault divorce has made it easy to divorce. Here's a brief definition of no-fault divorce. A no-fault divorce refers to a divorce based on irreconcilable differences or an irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. These are just fancy ways of saying a couple can't get along and there's no hope for reconciliation. Translation, if you don't like your spouse because your spouse smells, just put deodorant on, feel free to get a divorce. Again, we see how marriage in our culture is a contractual agreement and not a covenant. It might seem odd of you for some of you to hear, um, but the Catholic Church has historically understood the value of marriage. I grew up Catholic, so I'm pretty familiar with this. Um, The Catholic Church calls it a sacrament, which I don't agree with, but I appreciate how the Roman Church has made it difficult to divorce. For example, we cannot forget King Henry VIII, going back to 16th century. Love church history. Let's go back there, right? What did King Henry want? Married to Catherine, meet a king, you know, do whatever he wants, right? And then he meets, meets this person, Anne Boleyn, and he's like, I want to divorce Catherine so I can marry Anne Boleyn. And so he has to go to the Pope, Pope Clement VII, and Henry's like, hey, how about it? And Pope Clement's like, no, we're not doing that. So what did Henry do? Like, this is God's providence, you know? He breaks off from the Catholic Church, in effect, starting a Reformation in England. So he gets his divorce, but now we have Reformation in in England. Point there, though, is, right, the Pope's like, no, we're not doing that. You made a covenant, and you're going to keep it. Over 400 years later, not much has changed with the Catholic Church in this regard. Um, I recall doing some premarital counseling many years ago. It was an older couple. One of the individuals was previously divorced and um, part of the Catholic Church. That marriage did end a divorce. Now, the state recognized the divorce, but years later, the church still was unwilling to recognize his divorce. Now, on the one hand, the state could care less about who you're married to and how long, hence no-fault divorce. But on the other hand... What does God say about your commitment to marriage? Right? Now, think about that definition of no-fault divorce in light of what Jesus says in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So everything I've said thus far is my attempt to, to paint the reality of marriage and divorce in America. Commitment is low, and the ability to get out of a marriage is wider than a barn door. And now we see in verse 31 that the Pharisees taught in a similar vein, just as many states held and hold to, no-fault divorce. If a man wanted to divorce his wife, all he needed to do was some paperwork. And unfortunately, in the first century, the husband did not need to call the divorce attorney. That call did not need to be made. The husband had all the power and authority and sometimes abused his power and authority. What is interesting about the certificate of divorce is that it was a part of the Old Testament law to protect women, Deuteronomy 24. This is very fascinating and very insightful as to the root of what Jesus is actually saying. Christ needs to connect the Pharise- uh, correct the Pharisaical teachings because they were not rightly interpreting, teaching, and applying divorce. 
It seems archaic to us, but the certificate of divorce was intended to ensure that a man did not constantly divorce and remarry the same woman. Allow me to be as straightforward as possible on this point because it informs how you understand the last clause in verse 32. Sharice and I are married, right? Been married over 15 years. But let's say I give her a certificate of divorce, which wouldn't happen because she'd kill me before that, but let's say I give her a certificate of divorce. That certificate of divorce does two things. It does not allow me, the man, to remarry the woman. I can't keep marrying and divorcing Sharice. Two, the woman is free to remarry another man. Because of the hard heart of men, this law was put into place to protect the wife, to protect women. I cannot overstate this point. God instituted this law because of man's hard heart, because of his sin. Perhaps the most clarifying passage about what is going on here um, is Matthew 19. Let's take a look at that. And of course, we've got a conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus, and the Pharisees are doing their best to get get Jesus in that gotcha moment. They want to know if Jesus really knows his Bible and all that kind of stuff. So we have this particular exchange. And the Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Like he didn't go to Deuteronomy 24 right away. Note that. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. The really, really important passage about marriage right there. So Jesus acknowledges the law on divorce, and beyond providing his exegesis of Deuteronomy 24, Jesus actually goes back to the garden. When a man and woman come together in marriage, they are, what what does he say? One flesh. The idea of becoming one, the two becoming one flesh, is that you don't tear apart that one flesh after it's been united. You keep it together. So let's connect the dots real quick. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything good, including the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. God ordains their covenant relationship. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve betray God. Now we have sin. Because of sin, it grows and metastasizes. God eventually has to give his people laws regarding marriage, among other things. These laws are put into place in part to restrain the sin of man. That's what's going on here. When Jesus arrives on the scenes, the Pharisees made a poor situation even worse. And Jesus needs to set the record straight. According to Jesus, divorce seemed arbitrary because of the wicked hearts of the husbands and the corrupt teachings of the Pharisees. And when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19... 
he says, no, you guys got it wrong. What the Pharisees were teaching about divorce was utterly preposterous. As we'll see in a moment, the Pharisaical teaching on divorce created a bunch of cowardly men who did not own their responsibility to care for their wife. Men were acting like little boys. You want more thoughts on that? Go to my sermon two weeks ago when we talked about adultery and lust on Father's Day, as some of you will remember, in God's providence. Men were acting like boys. Now, before looking at the response of Christ, I want you to see how this teaching on divorce is connected to what I just said, the teaching on lust. It is no mistake that these two teachings are paired together, right? Some translations of the Bible into English, right, actually don't separate them out. They actually keep them together. It is no mistake that these two teachings are informing marriage, right? What did we see two weeks ago? Adultery is not just physical betrayal from your spouse. Jesus says adultery can take place in your heart. Jesus is not content with challenging your actions. He knows that rooting out lust goes to the core of who you are right here. And now Jesus says in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in the previous passage, Jesus addresses adultery as it relates to lust in the heart, and now he addresses adultery as it relates to marriage. In this passage, divorce is acceptable, as we read, on the grounds of sexual immorality. Now, can we presume from the context of this passage that sexual morality is actually adultery? What would we see in the previous passage? Adultery between a husband and a wife is not limited to sexual, uh, uh, to uh, physical adultery, right? So how do we contend with this? Lust begins in the heart. Jesus isn't saying that your one lustful thought is grounds for divorce, but he is showing the root of your sin. Here's what I really want you to see in verses 31 and 32. I want you to see the logic of Christ and how radically pro-marriage he actually is. While Jesus addresses divorce, he closes the barn door to protect marriage. Here's the logic of our Lord. A man cannot divorce his wife for just any reason. That's verse 31, right? Number two, a man can divorce his wife on grounds of sexual immorality. Verse 32. Also in verse 32, if a man divorces his wife for a reason other than sexual immorality, he then causes his former spouse to commit adultery. One more point in terms of following the logic. And then if a man marries the, new, the now divorced woman, that man commits adultery. Allow the logic of Christ to land on you. I rarely repeat myself. I'm going to do it here. A man cannot divorce his wife for just any reason. That's obvious, right? Verse 31, a man can divorce his wife on grounds of sexual immorality. Verse 32, if a man divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, he causes his former spouse to commit adultery. And then not only that, if that woman, that now divorced wife, that woman gets remarried to another man, the original husband causes that man to commit adultery. Here, here's the deal. If a husband unjustly divorces his wife, he will be held accountable for the position he puts his ex-wife in. Not only that, the husband is accountable for the man who ends up marrying his ex-wife. 
The last clause of verse 32 is rarely understood correctly because it's disconnected from the logic of the entire passage. Husbands, you bear the responsibility, the tremendous responsibility to love your wife. God has entrusted you to cultivate a relationship with your wife. God has ordained you to live self-sacrificially for your wife. Yes, this passage teaches about the grounds of divorce. But what you really need to see is that Jesus is so pro-marriage, right? He's so hard on the dude, on the husband, because he's so pro-marriage. Marriage is to be taken seriously. If a husband unjustly divorces his wife, then a cascade of implications are put into motion and the husband will be held accountable before God. How about this, fellas? When you say, I do, or when you said, I do, you fight harder than hell to keep your word. And I literally meant what I just said. You fight harder than the demons of hell to keep your word. It is interesting to me that the two teachings that bookend this teaching on divorce have a direct impact on marriage. I already noted the connection between lust and adultery, but now look at the following passage. What do we read in verse 37? This is what we're going to talk about next week. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus says, guys, keep your word. Don't overcomplicate this, fellas. When you said, I do, to your wife, keep your word until the end. Now, what about the wife, right? Like The context of the first century here is talking about the husband in relationship to the wife and how divorce works there. What about a wife? What if a husband commits adultery? Is the wife allowed to divorce the husband? Well, yes, I do think this is a two-way street. I cannot imagine a world where God would not allow recourse for a wife when the husband is clearly unfaithful. But as I said two weeks ago, Jesus is pointing the figure at the fellows to push them to get their heart and their house in order. Because of the poor teaching of the Pharisees and because of sin, Jesus needs to address divorce, but he's doing so by directly looking at husbands. So, the question is why? Why does he look at the husbands? Because the buck stops with you fellas in your marriage. You're the head of the house. If you show me a spiritually strong and self-sacrificial husband, I'll show you most likely a strong marriage. Now, here's the question about sexual immorality. This is the question everyone brings up uh, just right before service. Myself and two other guys were talking about this question. Is divorce permissible for reasons other than when a spouse physically commits adultery? Right? Here are my thoughts. First, we see in verses 31 and 32 that Jesus is narrowing the grounds for divorce. There's no room for no-fault divorce for Jesus. Second, the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. In the New Testament, 
pornea had a wide range of meanings, including sexual morality. You have to, when you run into the word pornea, you have to allow the context to guide the, the specific translation of that word. Third, within the immediate context of verses 31 and 32, physical adultery would have been the primary assumption. Fourth, the manifestation of adultery in the heart can be taken to a new and grotesque level since the time of Christ. When we hear the word pornea, more than adultery comes to mind. Right? Just when you think the wicked heart of man could not get worse, just wait around for five seconds and you'll hear something more demonic. Right? There are things that happen that make adultery look tame. Therefore, I can unfortunately envision a situation where there needs to be a divorce for a reason other than physical adultery. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that lightly. And I have the right to change my mind. I'm, I'm just putting that qualification out there. But I got to tell you that sexual perversions are going on in this world that just blow your mind, right? You hear things. You see things. It's June. We all know what June is, Gay Pride Month. Those parades are not kid-friendly or family-friendly. It's just like, what's going on? So I'm hesitant to take an absolute position here, but I raise the issue just as I said because I know that's where our minds naturally go. We ask that question. What else is there? Okay, so it seems clear from our Lord that divorce maybe, not necessarily should be, uh, pursued on grounds of sexual morality. Jesus defends marriage by pushing back against the no-fault divorce in the first century and the 21st century. There's another key text that we need to look at regarding marriage and divorce. The importance of marriage is also found in 1 Corinthians 7. We read, to the married, Apostle Paul says, I give you this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So the Apostle Paul, I think, is fairly straightforward. The marriage union is codified in Genesis 1 and 2, and the covenant you made with your spouse is to be protected at all costs. So are there other reasons for a person to pursue divorce? Perhaps. Some have advocated, some of my friends have advocated, that when one spouse abandons the other, there are grounds for divorce. The principle is evident when you hear it, right? Like, if the person just gets up and leaves, like, what are you left with, right? And so I, I get the sentiment, I get what people are thinking here, but Holy Scripture nuances this principle. And I must admit, what I'm about to say is wildly unpopular. I expect half of you to disagree. Like half of you right here are going to disagree with me. So we're just going to be good with that. Um, but I encourage you to be like the Bereans and wrestle with Holy Scripture. Acts 17, verse 11. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16, we read about marriage and divorce in the context of an unbelieving spouse. That's really important information. For example, the husband is not a Christian, but the wife is a Christian. What happens if the unbelieving spouse ab abandons the believing spouse? There seems to be grounds for divorce. So we read this. But if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Listen, the vast majority of Christians take this passage to say that if two Christians are married and one of them abandons the other, then there is an allowance for divorce. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't see it here. I just don't see it. It's not what the passage says. And as a side note, 
I hope that a follower of Jesus Christ would never abandon their spouse, right? The aim of two believing spouses is to work toward reconciliation. So another big question on most people's minds are, or is, are there more allowances for divorce, right? For example, what should be done if there's a physically abusive spouse? Now, I don't have time for an exhaustive answer, but again, I'm going to make some comments on it. First, every situation is messy and nuanced. Been in pastoral ministry long enough, and I've unfortunately walked through enough divorces to know that every situation is messy and nuanced. Not one divorce situation looks exactly like the other. Second, when there is clear sin in the marriage, the goal is always restoration. The first goal is always restoration. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Third, and not necessarily in order of importance here, if there is abuse, the person or persons being abused must be protected at all costs. At all costs. We can hold two truths that God deeply cares about. God wants marriage protected and honored. God does not tolerate abuse. I would never ask a wife to return to the home of a physically abusive husband. Never. Not once. Some people disagree with me on that. Not a chance. I want to be able to sleep at night. And I want that. Usually wife and children cared for and protected. When there's abuse, in particular physical abuse, I do think other biblical principles come into play. If I were to make this a two-hour sermon, I would talk about the importance of covenant in marriage, and when that covenant breaks, all the implications that now take place. And I, and I think about a, a marriage covenant between a man and woman in light of God's covenants with his people. Maybe that two-hour sermon will happen another time. I could say more, but I want to discuss my third major heading here, which is restoration and redemption. I've attempted to explain the landscape of divorce in America. I've tried to show you the logic of Christ from Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. And I understand more can be said and qualified. Christ is, though, radically pro-marriage. But now I want to show you the power of the gospel to redeem what was previously broken. We cannot talk about marriage and just stop here. We've got to talk about how the power of the gospel takes your messiness, your brokenness, and brings healing and restoration. Since Genesis 3, God has been in the restoration business. Have you ever met someone who likes to take an old piece of furniture and remake it so it looks like new, right? You see you know, those people in your lives are like, that's not a piece of junk. Well, you are all, and myself included, the oldest, mosted, rust-up piece of furniture ditched by the homeowner by the side of the road. That's who you are. That's who Sean Powers is. And if you've been divorced, many people know where all those rust spots are located. But here is the deal. God drives by the furniture, picks it up, and puts you into the back of the pickup truck. And then you hear these words from our Lord. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. And then you say this to the Lord, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. 
what is my point? We are all, we are the rusted up piece of furniture that no one wants, but God comes along and heals the wounds and mends the broken bones. Yes, divorce is ugly. Yes, there's a tremendous amount of pain in divorce. Yes, God hates it when a covenant between a husband and wife is broken. And yes, God is merciful to meet you even in the most unfortunate circumstances. He meets you. He cares for you. So as you sit and listen today, you are called to praise God for your current lot in life. And if you are remarried, you fight like crazy. You fight like crazy to be faithful to your spouse. Hell's fighting to break you up. You've got to fight harder to be faithful. And if you've never been divorced and you are married, principle still applies. Christian, uh, Jesus died, rose from death, and has now empowered you with the Holy Spirit to reverse the curse and to live distinctly, to live distinctly in a culture that frankly does not care about divorce or doesn't care about marriage, which is why we have a lot of divorce. So as Christians, as Redemption Hill Church, let us live distinctly for our good and for the honor and glory of God. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.